Hello, bookworms. Welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we talk about your favorite books. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and I am so excited for you to meet today's guest, Michelle Hart, an author and feminine expansion mentor who helps women transform their lives and align with their purpose. She's also one of my dearest friends. We both love to cook and talk about food and chefs and restaurants, and I was thrilled when Michelle chose a cookbook to talk to me about today. If you're not hungry yet, I promise you will be when you finish this episode. You are going to love hearing Michelle tell me why The Food Lab by Kenji Lopez-Alt is the best book ever. For more information on how to support this podcast, check out my Patreon. For about the cost of a latte, you can have access to all sorts of extra goodies. Every week, you'll get exclusive interview clips with my guests that are only available to patrons. I also send out advance notice of the books we discuss, curated reading lists, my monthly reading wrap-ups, including The Good, The Bad, and The DNFs, and essays about the reading life. Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash best book ever to learn more about how you can help me keep the candles burning over here in my reading cave. Now back to the show. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the best book ever podcast. Hey, Julie. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so happy to see you. You know, I have been saying since the beginning of this podcast that I truly want people to choose any book that they love. And you are the first person who really believed me when I said that because you chose a cookbook and I'm so excited. Are you one of these weirdos like me who reads cookbooks cover to cover like a story? Cover to cover. And I got to tell you, I don't think I ever told you this. When you first started this podcast, I was elated because I love the premise, but I was also secretly terrified because I don't have a favorite book. Yeah. I have so many favorite books and I have favorite books in different categories or for different phases of my life. And our little writer circle always has their, this is my absolute favorite book. I'm so passionate about like, if someone says Howard's End to me, you are the first person I think of. Um, But then when the idea that I could choose a cookbook came up, I was like, oh, this, this is going to be really hard for Julie because it's going to be like a textbook. (laughs) <laughs> and I almost went with my first culinary school textbook on cooking. Um, and it would have been like the 1999 edition. So it would have been really old and difficult for you to find. Um, but then this man that I've been dating referred me to this book and opened my eyes. It's basically like a modern version of my first culinary school textbook. And I, just fell in love with it. Um, So it's called The Food Lab by J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. And he's all over the internet doing cooking things and videos and um, has great little shorts on YouTube. So a lot of people might have seen him there. Um, But this book is James Beard Foundation Award winner. Um, I think the International Association of Culinary Professionals gave it an award. It's just intense. And I love it, but I'm okay. an enthusiast. <laughs> Before we get to this actual book, because I, I really want to talk to you about this book, but I want to back up for a second too. So you went to Culinary Academy. I did. Um, so I graduated a year early from high school and 
wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I got into UT, A&M, Clemson, and USC and kind of found myself in this limbo where I couldn't get student loans without my parents' help. It was a really weird time in my life. Um, So I decided to put off undergrad for a while until I was old enough to sign contracts and do things on my own. Um, And then I found my way to culinary school in the midst of that. And so I went to the Art Institute of Atlanta, and it's only a year and a half. It's an associate's program. Um, But I've been cooking since I was, you know, pre-10 years old and cooking entire elaborate meals for my family from like 13 and up. So the opportunity to go to culinary school just felt like this really fun adventure in the kitchen to me all the time. And it was, and I realized in culinary school that I did not want to work in a kitchen. Um, <laughs> but through that, I I got to study in Austria. I got to study in Paris. Um, I learned oh pretty much culinary school at that, at that level, just that associate's degree is mostly just techniques and learning how to work in a kitchen, learning like food costing, ordering, storage techniques, all the different things you need to know for a restaurant. I did a food writing course, uh, briefly thought that I would be a food anthropologist um, because Good Eats had just come out and it was a thing that was going on, you know, a couple years after that where I was like, oh, that's a thing, but I also like money. So <laughs> I decided not to do that. <laughs> Um, but I'm just fascinated by like the, the science of food and the, the stories behind food and how we get to the dishes that we get to. And the science of food fascinates me in a way that no other science really ever has. So was it the physical labor part of it that made you decide you didn't want to work in, in a kitchen or was it something else? You're going to laugh at this knowing my career history. Um, I found that chefs in general tended to be very high strung individuals with attitude problems. And it was a very stressful environment. So I went into law instead. (laughs) So (laughs) law is not really that different than being in a kitchen. It's just less hot temperature wise. Right. Um, Nicer suits, I would think. Yeah. And now, (laughs) you know, cooking and food is this very like grounding activity for me. And it's a way that I show love and I show nurturing Um, both to myself and to other people. It's been a really interesting transition from, you know, cooking to survive as a child to cooking to please and nurture my family as a teenager to, you know, cooking for what I thought might be a career to now just being something that just nourishes me. Tell me what kind of cook you are. Like, what's a Tuesday night Michelle meal? I'm really like at home for the most part, if I'm cooking just for myself, I am primarily plant-based. So one of the things that I will do a lot is just like sauteed veggies, um, just very lightly sauteed or blanched or steamed um, with some seasoning, maybe with a side of pasta or some rice. Um, I really like right now, it's like this kind of like just farmer peasant type meals at night. Um, Like this really nice, just organic ground chicken that I saute with onions and garlic and then throw in snap peas and put that over some rice and season it well. And it's just really simple. Um, Whatever fresh herbs I happen to have. Um, So a lot of times it's a, 
It's just about what thing is in my fridge from the farmer's market that I'm going to use with this technique that I feel like doing, which is most frequently just a quick saute. Um, but as we're getting into the hundred degree temperatures now, huge salads, like mm. big salads. I might do something fancy like a, like a panko crusted goat cheese on top if I'm feeling really oh, insane, yum. but oh, yes. Yeah, so good. So just little goat cheese balls, flatten them out, quick egg wash, panko crust, saute them, put them on top of the salad. Oh my and God, then you can just so like good. squish them out. So they're warm and gooey and it's kind of a little bit of lemon juice and that kind of forms the dressing. Oh, it's so good. So you like the cooking because you can improvise. Yeah. It's like, it's, and it's part of why I like this book so much is it's a, it's an invitation to create. Whereas baking, you have to really know the science of everything you're doing. If you want to create a recipe from the ground up, you can't just like put something on the stove and say, Oh, I'm out of this spice. So I'm going to replace it with this. You can do a little bit in baking, but it doesn't always end well. As we were preparing for this and you and I texted back and forth several times about different recipes we wanted to try. And I mentioned, gee, these biscuit recipes in this food lab recipe sure look good. And you immediately texted back, yes, I am a biscuit slut. Yes. So, yes, I biscuit, am. Miss <laughs> Biscuit Slut. Did you end up making the biscuits in the food lab? I did. I did. Hold on. I'm flipping to the recipe right now so I can I make some notes on it. Um, did you make the biscuits? I did make the biscuits. <gasps> okay. Which ones did you make? The flaky buttermilk the, ones? I made the, yes, with the cheddar and scallion. Oh, okay. So I did just straight up flaky buttermilk. What did you think? I thought they were terrible. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. I... Before I cooked every single thing in this book, I, I said my rule for myself was I am not going to alter anything, even though that's always my instinct when I'm cooking mm -hmm. is, oh, that sounds like a lot of salt. I'm going to pull that mm -hmm. back because it's my dinner. But I thought yeah. for the purpose of this podcast and talking to you, I'm going to follow it to the grain of salt. I followed everything. And my biscuits, the cheddar scallion biscuits, they were like they didn't rise. And I had a brand new, I had brand new ingredients. So it mm -hmm. wasn't that the, I forgot what the leavening agent in that was, but probably baking soda. Uh, there's baking powder and baking soda in them. Yeah. So both of mine were new. So I mm -hmm. knew that wasn't the problem. And they just, they didn't rise and they were dense and they were very salty. I thought. Interesting. So okay. So I just went with the straight up buttermilk biscuit recipe. I see I again not rule not rule following over here at all. Um what I did was I did one teaspoon of kosher salt and then half of unsalted butter I replaced with salted butter. So I actually added more salt but in a like a different format. Mm -hmm. And then for the sour cream instead of sour cream I actually used forager cashew yogurt, plain. So it's more of like a plain Greek yogurt flavor because um, sour cream can tend to have kind of a saltier flavor too. So maybe that was part of it. 
Um, but because I'm doing more dairy free stuff, I was like, there's already buttermilk. If I put sour cream in there, it might be a lot. Um, but I'm wondering if the, if part of the rise issue is the cheddar itself, because Maybe six ounces, did it feel like a lot to you? It looked a like a lot. lot. Yes. Okay. It was a lot that's a of lot, cheddar. Like heavy dairy. Yeah. And part of what, that was one of the things like, had I not been preparing for this podcast, I would have looked at that and gone, no, this is, this method's not going to work. It's so yeah. much. And, and trust me, I never say no to a ton of cheese, but it, I, <laughs> I could tell it wasn't going to be. So they were just really, I mean, they were fine. Everyone, you yeah. know, had one and was like, yeah, it was, it was fine. But it, okay. What's, tell me what a perfect biscuit is. Okay. So I have a couple of schools of thought on biscuits. Um, <laughs> they're like books. There's no, there's no one favorite biscuit. Correct. Um, <laughs> there are the like the southern fluffy biscuits and these like so that he calls these flaky and I I agree that they were flaky ish um but there's like there's a biscuit shop here in town called uh Confiteris and they really they're famous for making jams and jellies but they started making biscuits as vehicles to sell their jams and jellies and their biscuits are phenomenal so there are these laminated biscuits that are more like croissant layers. And I think, I think there's 108 layers in their biscuits. They're like oh my this God. thick and cut them open. And like each half of the biscuit is like a biscuit in and of itself. And it's just so good. I love like just being able to like slip some butter in between layers of a biscuit and let it melt. And they also have gluten-free biscuits there that are just as good as the regular ones, which is just a feat I don't even understand. If there, there's a witchcraft going on in that shop, for sure. <laughs> um, so if I had to pick a favorite biscuit here in town, it would be that. Um, but there's also a place uh, that called Fix that does like a really wonderful southern fluffy, like your grandmother just made these and handed them to you type biscuit. Um, I'm also a big fan of the old school Bisquick box oh, mix yeah. drop biscuits, which is, you know, might be sacrilege to say, but they're, they're good. <laughs> but I would, I would have loved to see like a laminated biscuit situation in here. Mm -hmm. But I think what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a cook and not a baker. And he definitely like has explored and experimented with things and knows a lot of techniques and differences, but like teaching someone to create a laminated biscuit in a cookbook is, is going to be a really big feat. Oh yeah. Like that's, that's something hard. you take a class for. So um, where, where do his biscuits land? Cause yours came out. Okay. So where would you say yeah, they land I wish I'd in taken your pantheon pictures. of great biscuits? I will make these biscuits again. Mm. Um, I don't know that I would add, I was just really turned off by the addition of the cheese and the other things to them. So I don't know that I would add anything else to them again. I will say I did make sausage gravy with them. So that might have played into, <laughs> played into what I thought about the overall biscuit situation. Um, and he has a biscuit recipe, the easy cream biscuits that are really quick mm -hmm. that looked pretty good. I might try those next. Cause I do, I would like something that's just like quick. 
know, it's yeah. just, it's just me. I live alone. So cooking elaborate things that make, you know, eight to 12 servings is kind of a big deal. Um, I would say like for the biscuits that I make at home, I'll definitely make those again. They will be probably, you know, my like third or fourth choice. And part <laughs> of the reason is because I keep a stash of frozen Confederate biscuits in my freezer at all times now. So this book, the food lab, it is gigantic. Yeah, it's it's 958 pages. How would you describe it? So I would describe it. It's not just a cookbook. And a lot of cookbooks, you know, they they run the gamut from like memoir cookbook to just straight up cookbook to like, here's how you change your entire lifestyle. Like they've got different angles on them. Yeah. This one I would just call a really phenomenal reference cookbook. Um, it opens up with conversions and pantry staples and kitchen gear and why you should choose this item over this item. And one of the big things I did was changing my cutting boards when I first started reading this book because I realized that the, the wood cutting boards I had just weren't up to par. So like, I started changing how I dealt with my kitchen implements before I ever looked at any of the recipes in it. You know, I just kind of flipped through and was like, oh, these all look good. But I started from the beginning going, how does this guy who spends all of his time experimenting, like what does he find about like the best tools and the best implements and how does he care for his stuff? Um, Because that's something that's really important to me at this point in my life is just having good stuff that lasts a long time rather than buying whatever works for the moment and having to replace stuff. After that, it just, it starts to move into spices, salts, things you need, then techniques. And I loved that it starts with 30 pages on how to cook eggs. Okay. So did you make any of Kenji Lopez's egg recipes? So I did. And this is actually had a really like nearly, I don't want to call it a relationship, but nearly a uh, situationship ending discussion with, um, we'll call him psych daddy, the, uh, the psychologist that, <laughs> that put me onto this book over the question of what you actually add to scrambled eggs. Salt and pepper. That is all. Do not add dairy. Don't even talk to me. This is why, this is why we're friends. So <laughs> I add a splash of filtered water, okay, like a splash. And then I add pepper before cooking the scrambled eggs. I add salt towards the end because the salt, you know, it affects the way the eggs cook, um, draws moisture out too quickly, in my opinion. And then I cook them very low and slow. Page 119, <laughs> there's a whole discussion on when you salt the eggs that you're about to scramble. Yeah. And so I did go back and like do a little experiment. It, it changes the coloring. It, it changes the composition in some way, which is really fascinating to me. So psych daddy thinks that we should add things to our scrambled eggs. He thinks that we should add milk or cream. And this was his reasoning. Water and oil, the oil from the eggs, mm-hmm. do not blend. They don't emulsify. My response to that was that maybe the problem was not the water, but his whisking technique. 
I'm not sure you should go after a man and his whisk. I mean, he's <laughs> got a very big whisk. Maybe he's, just, I don't know, maybe he's just not using it right. <laughs> so what was your opinion? <laughs> what was your opinion of the scrambled eggs that you made using Kenji's recipe? Um, I disagree that to get fluffy scrambled eggs, you have to use relatively high heat. Because I always cook over medium to medium low and I do it low and slow. And I, I'm not a super patient person, but slow with eggs really makes a difference. He also says that for creamy eggs, stirring constantly is preferable. And I find that actually gets you a lot of um, like smaller curds yes. that I don't want. Exactly. So I basically leave my eggs there and then I'll kind of push them from the edge of the pan to the center and then kind of swirl them around and then let them sit again. And it's like a very patient process. The eggs are like a lover. It's like foreplay. You don't want to rush them through to the end. Yes. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's that I treat my eggs like a woman and we're dealing with men cooking <laughs> eggs and they're just rushing through. I don't, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Kenji. Whisk it and get the hell out of the kitchen. <laughs> Got shit to do. Breakfast to eat. Did you try potatoes? Okay, Any potato I recipes? Didn't tell me what you made. Okay, tell so my favorite thing. recipe in this whole book—it's a super crisp roasted potatoes on page four seventy-four. Okay. And again, it's another situation where it's not just a recipe; it's an experimentation of like I did it this way, then I did it this way, and here's pictures of all the different ways that you do it. It's a multi-step process. But man, the resulting potatoes are like the best you will ever make in your home oven. So the key is you've got to peel them first. Okay. And you don't have to. Um, but I, I tried this two different ways. I really like the peel on my potato. They didn't get as crispy with the peel on for me. Um, so I'll do them probably most often with the peel on, but I wanted to really perfect them for the sake of this podcast. Um, so for the sake of pure potato perfection, I would say peel them. Okay. So you cut them up and you're going to boil them until they're fork tender. You pull them out, kind of shake them off. So they're a little bit dry. You're going to spread them out on a baking sheet. So what he does that I love is the, the way he did the oil that you heat the oil on your stovetop and you put garlic, herbs, whatever flavoring you want in that oil. And then you, you take a sieve and you drain that so that the oil is clear again. And that's the oil that you put on the potatoes. And so you put them in this bowl and you like rough the potatoes up. You just like shake the bowl back and forth. So you start to get kind of like a pasty potato layer kind okay. of showing up. And then you put the oil on and you toss them in that oil and then you spread it out and you're roasting them. Meanwhile, you've saved all this herb and garlic deliciousness that you've drained off. Uh -huh. When they come out of the oven, you take that and you toss it in. And then if you want to add any cheese or anything, you do that then. Oh but you, so you add those sauteed herbs back in because otherwise you're going to burn them. So all of your aromatics would just go to hell. And this way, like an I don't know why it had never occurred to me in my entire life to do that, to like yeah. pull the aromatics out and then add them back in. So it's always smart. been like, 
just risk them getting burnt and that's what you deal with or don't use them at all. And this was such an easy solution that I think like I'm, this man might be my hero for the rest of my life because (laughs) these are the the best fucking potatoes in the world. Did you make anything that was not good? Not yet. Mm. I will say there were things that I went to do that I looked at and I was like, this is way too extra and I'm not going there. The only complaint I had were flavor complaints. For example, that um, marinated kale salad with chickpeas and sumac onions. And as I was making it, I was thinking, there's going to be too much sumac. If you're not used to it, it's already tangy and can be strange. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, this is, this is too much. But the technique is fantastic. And as soon as I yeah. tasted it, I right away went, nope, that was too much. It's too sour. It doesn't the entire dish. But I'm going to mm-hmm. use that technique forever. So, like, I, I see exactly what you're saying. It's so, if what you want to do is learn how food works, mm-hmm. this is the reference. And then you play with the flavors a little bit and go, okay, let's dial back the sumac a little bit. Kenji, I need to not <laughs> blow out my palate, but, <laughs> but maybe he, I mean, uh, that's just a purely taste thing. He might really like super sour. Yeah. Like and that's a little the sour. taste is so subjective as far as taste right. buds. And, you know, some people have like the super taster thing going on. Some people have genetic predispositions to like certain mm. things or dislike certain things. Um, you know, there's allergies. There's so many different uh, components that go into whether someone likes something or not. Um, right. Like I've got friends that my my culinary arsenal is completely whittled down because they don't they have the palate of a five year old, yes. and so I'm like right. I have to be really careful and I kind of season the food for them, and then I'm kind of like oh, it doesn't really have enough spice or yeah. salt or anything. Um, but I love that you enjoyed the technique and are like this is a a thing that I want to make again with a different seasoning pattern. Yeah. Um, I liked it a lot. I like, I think it's a really, really good cookbook. So, okay. So tell me when you're looking for, when you're looking for cookbooks, what is it that you want? I have a couple of different criteria. Primarily I want to learn because learning is just like, it's the crux of the experience for me. Just finding something that somebody else have a, has a different perspective on, even if it's a, you know, might be a technique I've been doing my whole life. But if they're like, hey, you thought about doing it this way mm-hmm. instead? Yeah, I'll try that once, maybe twice. And if I don't like it, I won't do it again. Um, but I'm always looking for, you know, the next evolution of the things that I love. Um, so there's, there's this really wonderful moment of knowing that you're content and you're satisfied and you're present with where you are, but you also know that it can be better. And so you're open to that unfolding in ever, you know, every direction it can. So learning through my cookbooks is a big deal. Like salt, fat, acid, heat is one of my mm. favorite cookbooks, another like very learning based cookbook. Um, and then I also like um, these like, lifestyle change type things where they're looking at like, Hey, I was you know living like this. And then this thing happened and I had to change my whole diet and I was devastated. And then I discovered this way of eating. Mm-hmm. And so they're not really putting you on a diet per se, but they're like, here, 
is my modern approach to Ayurvedic diets. Or here is my modern approach to like farm to table, farm to table cooking, or, um, you know, like just eating fresh or eating clean. It's things that inspire and teach. Mm-hmm. If you just kind of put a book in front of me and you're like, here's some recipes to help you lose weight. It's going to bore me to death. Yeah. It's not going to inspire me. Um, they've got to have gorgeous pictures. What do you think are like mandatory cookbooks to have in your kitchen? And, and I mean, I want you to include in there the ones that you have. I have several that I own that I never cook out of, but I love them. I love reading them. I think mm-hmm. they're gorgeous, gorgeously shot, gorgeously written recipes, but they're just too fancy or too expensive or whatever. So like what, what are some staples of your pantry? Um, definitely salt, fat, acid, heat is definitely one. There is one that I love, 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 love called Plenty that I think is, is that, really wonderful. That's Autolenghi, right? It's, yes. I have that one. You have that one? Oh, God, okay. Yeah. One, good. So good. I think honestly, the joy of cooking is one that I think that probably everyone should have just because it's a classic. It's a, Mm. you know, the, it's the kind of book that like helps people get into cooking. Half-Baked Harvest is a favorite of mine. Mm. Um, There is a newer one that I've gotten that I would recommend to a lot of, but uh, it's called Well and Good. I've only made a few things from it, but it's really wonderful, beautifully written. Um, So the New York Times has a cookbook called New York Times Cooking No Recipe Recipes. Mm. And I think that one is a really great one for people. I bought it for my brother um, for people to just kind of start cooking and just kind of start like absorbing things to just have in your memories so that when mm-hmm. you're somewhere, you can just cook a thing. Um, you know, I think for a lot of us, the art of having a recipe passed down orally and then just being in our brains is gone. Like we may have mm-hmm. a few, um, but like, like my bolognese recipe passed down to me. I couldn't write it down if I tried. I've tried a few times. I don't I don't know how to do it because I make it differently every time. There's always yeah. like a little bit of a different thing and it's by feel and by scent. Like if I tried to tell somebody do this, I'd be like, you know, and then when it smells the way it's supposed to smell, you yes. add this thing. Yeah. And probably why I didn't become a food writer. Love and lemons is one of my mm. favorites. Um, and a lot of these are more plant-based things. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have love and lemons and love and lemons every day. Uh, both of those I think are really wonderful. Um, then I have one more that I was going to mention to you. This is because of your, your love of charcuterie. Mm-hmm. charcuterie. There's a book called Gray's. And it's uh, the subtitles inspiration for small plates and meandering meals. Mm. And so it's like the the photo, if you have time to look it up, is like a, a really beautiful charcuterie board, just like right on the front of the cover and like a big hunk of bread. And I'm loving more and more now, like the idea of just 
having people over again and like having little food stations across the place and just letting people meander and socialize. And, you know, the idea of socializing around food with people outside your house is becoming a thing again. And this one is one that I haven't opened up yet because I haven't let myself dream of that quite yet. (laughs) But I think it's, it's going to be next on my list to explore um, because I just really want to create an experience. That would be my last meal. If I if I were being executed tomorrow, I would ask for a charcuterie plate and a glass of rosé. Oh my god. Oh man. I think it's a perfect perfect meal. That is a perfect meal. What would yours be? If you're being executed tomorrow. Executed. I hmm. I think I might Don't have to focus go with on the execution part. No, I, I think I might have to go to char- the charcuterie route because it's got everything I would want. I would have crusty bread mm. and like crispy crackers and like a honeycomb with like really nice honey, like golden honey, um, some fig compote, bunch of different berries and fruits and like thick slices of honey crisp apple. Just okay, you're saying all, so many like, nutritious things. Where's the cheese? The cheese is like interspersed in there, like all the cheeses. <laughs> okay. um, but it would definitely include cheeses from the Cypress Grove Creamery, Humboldt Fog, and Truffle, mm. Truffle Tremor, um, for sure. Um, some Drunken Goat. Yum. Several different types of Manchego. A really, really nice... English cheddar and a nice Irish cheddar. Balance that out. And just really crisp Parmesan Reggiano. Oh, yum. So you're not doing a brie? You're not going to have no, any kind of triple creams or anything? I don't give a fuck about brie. I think I've had one too many that that like had a, a, like a sweaty foot smell that just turned me off. I didn't drop a gorgonzola or a blue in there. So I definitely need at least one moldy cheese to round it out. I need something uh-huh. like pungent. Yeah. Um, speaking of feet, just, <laughs> I don't really like brie, but give me the mold. Got it. Um, the feet of the and Yeah. Like the, the sweetie drop peppers. Mm, yeah. And like little pickled onions. Olives. Just, do you do olives? Sharp, I do do olives. Yeah. Any olive. And almonds, Marcona almonds and walnuts. Just. Oh my God, that sounds so good. We should just get ourselves executed. They have to give the answer I was going to come up with, but that, they have okay. to give us the charcuterie board, right? <laughs> if that's how we get this, I guess that's what we have to do. Dang. Well, Writers we'll have on. to make everything dramatic. <laughs> Michelle, my listeners don't know this, but I know this about you, that you are a great reader of all types of books, not just cookbooks. So I hope you will come back on and talk fiction with me. But also, anytime you have a cookbook to talk about, I hope you will come back again because this has been so fun. Will you tell my listeners where they can find you online? Yes, I am on Twitter, often causing chaos there (laughs) at divide underscore feminism. Um, also on Instagram, causing less chaos, mostly just memes, divine <laughs> underscore feminism. And my website, which is being revamped, but will be done by July 1st, I'm told, at michellehart.com. 
Beautiful. And just so you know, no unsolicited whisk pics or she will block your ass. Okay. (laughs) I mean, what kind of whisks are we talking about? (laughs) It is a felony to send someone an unsolicited whisk pic in the state Mm. of Texas. I'll just go ahead and give you that legal disclaimer. I'm not a lawyer, but I've heard it's bad. So don't do it. (laughs) Whisk owning people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Thank you so much for being with me today. It has been a delight. It's such a pleasure to be with you always. And I will come back and talk about any book with you anytime. Thanks for listening, Bookworms. For more information on this episode and links to all the books we discussed, go to our website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at bestbookeverpodcast. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and you can find me everywhere as Julie wrote a book. If you loved this episode as much as I loved making it, why not leave a review wherever you're listening? Each review helps new listeners find my work, and I'm so grateful for your help. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you at the library. We're going to be starving by the end of this. I know. I was like, I should have eaten before this. (laughs)